0: You gotta keep this strong. Thank you. to K.J. read the next section. So bust out your popcorn and open your ears. Oh, and I will pray. God, thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to worship you in in all the ways that you've gifted us with. And tonight, we're thankful to worship you through the written word. And we just appreciate um, the gifts that you've given to all the people who are here and serving. And we're thankful for them and ask that you bless them. And we're thankful for KJ and for the gifts that you've given her. And we thank you that you're with her tonight as she reads. And um, that you'll just permeate our hearts with... All of the, the love that you have for us and um, with the ninja messages that are in this book that we'll, um, we'll grow and transform as you, uh, as you design for us too. And uh, we thank you for all of this and say it in Jesus' name, amen. Hey,
1: I'm
2: KJ and I am super excited that you're here tonight really honored that you came to share this journey with us. If by the end of tonight you find that you are completely immersed in this book and you can't wait until next week to hear more of it, you can pick up your own copy of Chimera Within the Ambit out in the foyer at intermission or after tonight's event. We're asking for a suggested donation of 10 to $15 per book because 100% of the proceeds for the books are going straight to Teen Challenge. Another great way that you can support Teen Challenge is by picking up one of our Freedom Bracelets or our Freedom Keychains. Those are out there for a suggested donation of $15 to $20. Again, 100% of the proceeds for that will also go to Teen Challenge. If you would like to just make a straight donation to Teen Challenge, you can look for a red envelope in the back of the seats in front of you. Tuck your donation in there. If you're making a check, you can make it out to Celebration Center. And then you'll see that there's a box by the door on the way out of the sanctuary in the back corner back there. You can slip your envelope in there, and we will make sure that it gets calculated in with everything else going to Teen Challenge. Also, if you like what you hear tonight and you are interested in maybe bringing someone new back with you next week who hasn't heard the first three chapters, you can have them listen to them on podcasts at ccpuout.com. The reading from tonight will be available for the next week. And then each week that we do a reading, will carry the podcast for the following week. So if you miss a week or if you want to get someone caught up to speed and they want to listen to it, then they can do that at the podcast. Or they can get a copy of the book from us here in the foyer. Or you can order a copy of the book on Amazon.com. Also, just as a reminder, the book that we're going to be reading has a lot of mature, really deep content to it. So we do recommend it for kids that are over the age of 14. If you have kids, you want to take them upstairs to the child care area. You'll get a raffle ticket up there with a four-digit. last four digits will be your code. The four-digit code, will, if it pops up on the screen at any time during the reading, that's your indicator that we need you to go upstairs and help us out with something with your kids. If you for any reason need to step out of the sanctuary during the reading and you step out on this side, we will have live audio playing out there as well so that you can still hear what's going on inside of the sanctuary. Also as a reminder, we are collecting or asking for a simple donation of two dollars per child or eight dollars per family to help go to our youth that's working upstairs in the child care area. That money is going to help support scholarships to send those kids to camp. So it's a great cause. You can make those donations for childcare at the table down here where we're selling books and bracelets and keychains. If you have any questions about that, find somebody in a reading shirt and we can help answer your questions about child care.
3: Last week, we read chapters 1 through 3 of Chimera Within the Embit. The story is told from the perspective of Britt, a widowed mother who is single-handedly raising her twin 11-year-olds, Isla and Chasen. Brit and her children live in a society called the Ambit, 30 years after a botched annual immunization called the Mill kills off billions of people. In an effort to avoid repeating history, the Ambit, a newly formed group of survivors who had always opposed the use of the immunization in the first place, band together and outlawed the use of technology, practice of medicine, and even the consumption of meat. While the Ambit is a peaceful place, we find that its citizens have become numb to life. They are allowed to leave the ambit, but once they cross the ambit crossing, they are not allowed to return. In the first chapter, Britt's good friend and fellow single mother, Els, passed away in the throes of childbirth. Devastated by Els's death and her own father's unwillingness to practice medicine to save her, Britt finds herself secretly defying the ambit's way of life and claiming Els's only surviving 12-year-old son, Seth, as her own. Months later, when Britt's own son, Chasen, falls ill and dies unexpectedly, the Ambit's Guiding Authority decides that Brit was administering medicine to save him and ultimately caused his death. When the Guiding Authority votes to banish her to the outside, her daughter Isla is left in the care of Brit's father, while Seth loyally follows her across the Ambit Crossing, refusing to leave her as she refused to leave him. This week, we find Brit and Seth at the Ambit Crossing on the outside of the only world they've ever known. The Ambit. Tonight we'll read chapters 4 and 5, then take a short 10 minute break and come back together to read chapter 6 before we close out for the night. Here we go. This is chapter 4 of Chimera Within the Ambit.
0: Chapter 4 The Shelter Tree.
3: There I was in the place called the Ambit, the place I once called home. I was gliding along my lane as if I knew where I was headed without actually knowing. I found the porch and the doorstep that I had many times crossed, and as I extended my hand to the knob of the door leading to my cottage, a shudder ran up and down my spine. Don't. My insides were screaming for me to stop my movements and turn to go, but my body forced me to turn the knob. As the door creaked open, I noticed that the usual fire was not burning to its normal height, which made the room very dark and cold. I seemed to slither across the cold, wood floor until the footboard was at my feet. I looked over the perfectly made bed with confusion. Where's the lump of child I'm here for? Instead of moving, I only turned my head from side to side to quietly search the room. It wasn't possible for me to be discovered, but I felt as though I was being sought after. For a moment longer, I searched the corners of the small cottage room. Next to the woodpile, on the other side of the two-way fireplace, I spotted one of Chasen's small wooden creations on the floor, an unfinished knickknack that was taking on the appearance of a goat. Upon closer examination, I found it and him lying near the woodpile. I normally craved color and the life that it implied, but I found that the brilliant red pool before me now only meant death. His tiny body was face down in a puddle of it. His hand clenched a piece of kindling I suspected that he meant to place on the fire. I stood there frozen. Not like the first time I discovered him when I rushed to his side, pulled him onto my lap, and rocked him, begging to breathe. I didn't search his body for wounds that would explain the blood like I had before. I didn't try to locate the whittling pocket knife I suspected was the culprit. I didn't do any of that this time. This time, I already knew. He was gone. My body couldn't move. My eyes couldn't be swayed from him. My boy was dead. Awake. I opened my eyes to reveal the tree branches blowing in the casual wind above my head. I blinked for a second or two, trying to collect my thoughts and memories of the day's events. I wished it all just to be a nightmare, but I already knew that waking under this tree meant it wasn't. I was so exhausted with emotion that I'd fallen asleep accidentally, And hadn't moved an inch in my slumber My hands felt cramped My back was sore And only one side of my body felt any sort of warmth That was the side that Seth was laid up against Facing away from me He must have laid down too To nap in the sunlight that bathed us in a facade of warmth It was too early in the spring For there to be real warmth from the sun But the sight of it was refreshing Just as refreshing as the sight of the small blooms On the tree above our heads Which signified life As I stretched my mind to remember exactly what happened that morning, I stretched my sore body, arms, back, legs. I unclenched the two small objects in my hand, one red and one yellow. I rolled the tiny wheels of the red car back and forth with my finger. Years of play and enjoyment had left that one wheel with a small squeak as it turned. The sound, however annoying it might seem, was a sound that brought me peace in this moment. I recalled how only a few days ago I watched as Seth and Chasen played on the floor rug with the toy cars. The squeaky wheel was impossible to ignore when I tried to read and Isla tried to study, but now I'm sure even Isla would have welcomed the annoyance in exchange for the memory it produced. What now? I would have been happy to just curl up and die under this tree hours ago. My children were separated from me either by death or law. My husband was dead and my father was "'something I didn't understand. "'I would have been perfectly content "'to think the world was better off without me "'as the guiding authority had clearly demonstrated. "'But Seth changed all of that. "'Now I had no choice but to figure out something. "'He was depending on me to have a plan when he woke. "'I studied the satchel that he used as a pillow next to me "'and thought about how he must have known "'what the outcome of the ruling would be. "'He had packed his bag and left it waiting up "'against the side of the schoolhouse.' Did everyone know what was going to happen in the ruling but me? I wasn't prepared. Seth had 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 a bag packed, and my father had prepared a whole list of things to shout at me as I was dragged away. I wondered if Isla knew that the guiding authority would rule against me. I wondered if she cared. As I squeaked the wheel on the red car, it must have disturbed Seth in his sleep. He started churning, rolling back and forth, dreaming. I thought of what his dreams must be like. He lost his father when he was very young to hypothermia when he fell through the ice while fishing, and of course, his mother, Els, and baby sister. Seth's grandmother didn't claim him after his mother's passing because she didn't have a foot to stand on. She couldn't claim Seth, or they both would have been without. His grandmother died a few months back, probably of a broken heart for Els and her dead and displaced grandchildren. I could sympathize with that idea. Seth rolled onto his back, and I noticed a small cut on the side of his neck. It was colored deep red and was dry. He hadn't said anything to me about it, but I also hadn't looked past myself to notice it until now. I licked the corner of my sleeve and gently dabbed at it to wipe away the dirt and crusts of blood. I knew what infection could do without medicine to clean it. As I dabbed at him, his eyes opened, and for a second... I thought he looked scared, but soon the fear turned to recognition, and he smiled slightly. "'What happened to your neck?' "'Oh, I got cut, I guess,' he said, reaching up to feel for the wound. "'How?' "'Um, well, I—' he hesitated. "'I'm sorry, Miss Britt, but I had to get those cars for you. "'I knew that if I told you that Mr. Jonathan had them that you wouldn't have pursued them any further, "'but I, I just really wanted you to have them. "'You hurt yourself getting them?' "'Yeah,' I had to climb through his cottage window. I did it early this morning. Mr. Jonathan didn't see. He was already on his way to the schoolhouse when I did it. No one saw me. He defended his actions. I'm really sorry. I didn't want you to be upset with me, but I really needed them back. Mr. Jonathan stole them first. I know, Seth. Don't worry. I just feel bad that you got hurt. I smiled to ease his mind. I don't know if you'll ever know how much it means to me that you did that, I added. Seth smiled proudly. And my neck doesn't even hurt that bad, he added. I assumed it was to demonstrate to me how brave and vindicated he felt in that moment. And I brought some other things, too. He grabbed his satchel and opened it as he beamed from ear to ear. I brought us some bread and jars of fresh jam and vegetables, some seeds, a change of clothes for each of us, a blanket. He rambled off as he continued to pull a never-ending abundance of goods from his bag. He pulled out his play rug, a couple of the wooden knick-knacks, that Jason had whittled, and a pocket knife. The last thing he removed from his bag was something that had belonged to Isla, a book that she loved to read. She loved the stories, and it had spent many nights reading them to the boys. The title of the book was The Holy Bible, but Isla always called it Bible. I was surprised to see that Seth had chosen to bring Isla's Bible because he knew how much she valued it. He knew it would be missed, and with how fond he was of her, I was surprised that he'd stolen it from her. I could see the hesitancy as he revealed it to me from the bag. Seth! I exclaimed. That's Isla's book! He cringed, and all the pride he'd been puffed with before was gone. I know, he hung his head. Would it help if I said that I planned to give it back someday? Surprisingly enough, it did help. I understood now. He hadn't taken it so that he could scorn Isla. He had taken it as a memento of her. I couldn't be mad at him for that. He had something that I hadn't had in a long time. He had hope. He hoped to someday return her possession to her, but I think he also hoped that she would care less about having the Bible returned to her and more about having Seth returned. I took the book from his hands and felt the binding and caressed the covers. I flipped its pages. I noticed the pencil markings on the different pages. Isla had underlined passages in it. The puff of air that floated from the pages smelled of her. She'd slept with this book under her pillow so many nights it had acquired her sweet scent. A tear washed over my cheek and dribbled onto the cover, staining it temporarily. I knew the scent would fade, and so I inhaled as much of her from it as I could with one deep breath after another. I'm glad you took it, Seth. I recanted my original disappointment with him, and I hope that you will be able to return it to her someday. I was overlooking the view of the ambit. Knowing we were only a short geographical distance from her hurt us both for very different reasons. We both felt we couldn't be further from her in every other sense of the word, distance. I returned my attention to the book in my hands. I flipped the pages again and pulled it closer to me to inhale her scent once more. As I flipped the book this time, a paper fell from it and landed in my lap. It was a picture of the two of us, just Isla and me. I was stunned to find such a keepsake in her treasured book of stories. The story where the picture had been tucked was a book called Romans. The passage she highlighted on this particular page struck me. It read, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. In the margin next to this passage, she had written, Do not conform, transform. Are you okay? Seth asked. I looked down and saw a drop of blood had fallen onto the page in the Roman story. I'd cut my finger on the edge of the picture I was holding and hadn't even realized it. I wiped the following blood droplet on the fabric of my skirt and then sucked my finger to relieve the pain. I am going to be okay, I said with confidence. What Isla's book, passage, and notes meant, I didn't know. But for now, I was content to believe that it was that she was a deeper thinker than I had ever realized. I had hope that she was more like her father than I thought. And I had to believe that if she had a photograph of us together, that she didn't think I was as deplorable as she'd always made me feel. A scratching sound came from behind us. Steph and I both jumped up, our senses heightened by our unknown surroundings. We didn't see anything, so we waited for another moment and then heard it again. It sounded like someone scratching a chalkboard. The base of the tree we were reclined by was too wide to see around. Whatever was scratching had to be on the other side of it. The tree was enormous, with big, beautiful branches and little pink blossoms budding on its tips. I had noticed earlier that it was the only tree within sight, and yet it had not only managed to grow in the elements, it had thrived. Again the scratching sound came. Seth and I looked at each other, keeping quiet in order to listen. I tilted my head and stretched my neck around the base to see around the base of the tree. I couldn't help but let out a little laugh when I saw a furry little goat staring at me from around the other side of the tree. I think that if it could have, it would have laughed back at the sight of me. Instead, it just chewed its cud and then scratched at the ground again. Look, I said to Seth, look at this little guy. Seth came around behind me and peeked. We shared a small laugh. Where did it come from? Seth asked. I motioned to the closest farm on the nearest lane of the ambit's mall, probably down there. The little goat had worked his way around the base of the tree, eating what he could find, completely unafraid of us. We had a couple of goats on our farm that we adored for their personalities, fearlessness, but also their delicious nursing milk. Maybe he was banished, too, Seth joked. Maybe he was indulging in technology or eating meat. I smirked at his sense of humor. How he managed to joke about our current situation, I didn't know, but I appreciated it. You mean she, I corrected him. What? You mean she. He is a she-goat, I answered. Seth looked at me like I'd completely missed his joke and point, but it was actually he that missed my point. She can give us milk, I said, gesturing toward her swollen udders, and she did just that. As dusk approached, we decided it was best to take advantage of her milk and the scraps of food that Seth had stowed in the satchel for us. Then, not knowing what level of security we had and what sorts of dangers may lurk outside the Ambit Crossing, we decided it was best to climb our shelter tree to sleep for the night. The branches of the tree were so big and thick we were able to hammock the blanket Seth brought. We didn't want to lose our she-goat to a greener pasture, so we tied her to the bottom of the tree with the bindings that had been cut from my wrists. When we finally climbed into the hammock in the tree, Seth rested next to me and immediately fell off to sleep. It took me a little longer because I needed to make a plan. My mind raced with thoughts of what the next day would be like for us. My father had mentioned that someone would meet us at the Ambit Crossing, but it had been several hours and no one had shown. I didn't know why I would have expected anything different from my father or his promises. Lying in the hammock, I felt the quiet settle around us. Even our she-goat knelt down and slept below our hammock. Eventually, I was able to close my eyes. I pled with the night air to take away the sting of betrayal that I felt all over my body. I begged the ground not to consume me, but to lend me its strength for another day. A calm settled over my tense body, and I was finally able to sleep. In the night, a coughing awoke me. A gagging, choking cough startled me awake. My instincts yanked my body upward as they had so many nights of my life with Chasen. For a split second, I still thought I was awakening to coach him back to easy breathing. It wasn't until I hit the hard ground with a thud that I snapped out of it and poor Seth landed next to me. My reaction had launched us both out of our hammock. "'I was wondering where you were,' a man's voice said as he approached us. In the black of the night, all I could make out was his silhouette, which was shaded by a foreign bright light glaring from behind him. As he stepped closer, I saw his black boots were thick, and shiny but dirty. I pondered for a second what they were made out of, something I'd never seen before. The man coughed and gagged for another second. I squinted my eyes to look up. The spotlight behind him was so bright. I raised my hand to block the light, and then I was able to focus on the structure of his face and body. He was an older man, probably in his fifties, wearing a red and black shirt with an unusual striped pattern on it. The buttons were shiny, and his shirt was tucked into his pants at the waist. His hips were adorned with another strip of the shiny black material, which met in the middle and had one gigantic buckle with a picture of a large horned animal on it. His hair was dark, from what I could tell, sort of long and unkempt. His face was grisly and unshaven. From his lips hung a white stick with smoke coming from it. Every now and then, I would see him pull the stick from his mouth as he talked, and the smoke would then escape. The smell of it was something I'd never experienced, like burning, but different. I figured this must be medicine for his cough. I found my feet under me. Seth rubbed his eyes with his fists, trying to keep them open in the foreign light. The little goat, who had narrowly escaped us falling on her, had already stood, stomped in a circle, and collapsed in a ball again. She was fast asleep already. When the man finally got into view, he noticed Seth on the ground next to us at the base of the tree. "'Oh, didn't realize you had a kid with you. Are those stupid buzzards banishing kids now, too?' he asked rhetorically. "'Who are you?' I asked. I felt the shadow of his silhouette skip across my face as he approached. I was able to see him better now. He wiped his hands on his pants and then extended it to me. "'Oh, yep, that was rude of me,' the man smiled.' I'm Maris. I cautiously extended my hand out to meet his, shaking it gently. His skin was warm, but his hands were as rough as sandpaper. Nice to meet you, Mr. Maris. I'm Britt. Oh, I know who you are, Maris chuckled. You look just like your mother. My mother? You knew her? I was shocked. Oh, sure. Your ma, pops, Lucy and I used to run around together a while back, you know, before all this. "'Maris nodded his head toward the ambit. "'Lucy?' I thought for a second. "'Is that Lucida?' "'Yeah,' Maris said. "'Mr. Maris, how did you know to meet us here?' I asked. "'Maris puffed a cloud of smoke from his nostrils, "'followed by another from his lips. "'He pursed his lips and lifted his chin as if to release it into the air. "'He squinted at me, looking at me sideways, and then answered, "'Your father?' he said. "'But how?' How did he communicate with you? Seth found his way to my side, and I rested my hand on his shoulder. You're getting a little ahead of yourself, Mara smiled and examined the band on his wrist. He looked up at the dark night sky and around the surrounding landscape. I know you probably got questions that could go all night, but we ain't got time for that right now. We gotta go, so let's load up, he said, gesturing to the lights behind him. I looked down at Seth, who returned my confused look. I sucked in a deep breath of air and confidence and lowered my voice. No. No, Maris seemed surprised. No, I said. We're not going with you. Maris smirked and chuckled as if he thought I was joking with him. You're not, he said, still smiling. No, I said firmly. Well, what in Riven's Red are you going to do then, he asked. I didn't know how to answer, and I didn't know what Riven's Red was. He used a lot of words I'd never heard before, but I wasn't about to let him know that. Don't worry about us, Mr. Maris. I appreciate you coming all the way out here, but I can't leave the ambit without my daughter, I explained. Maris's smile melted, and he nodded in acknowledgment. I see, he murmured. He inhaled another long billow of smoke, held his breath for several seconds, and then released it again with a choking cough. From his pocket, he pulled a yellow handkerchief "'which he dabbed at the corners of his mouth with. "'Brit, I can't force you to come with me, but look at that.' "'Maris pointed to the dim light that the ambit cottages gave off. "'Life's gone on without you. "'I know it's hard to imagine, but once you're out of sight, you're out of mind. "'If your daughter is in the ambit, then she's safe. "'But as long as you're out here, you're not.' "'Maris's eyes were very serious.' I looked down at Seth. I took my hand off of his shoulder and wiped his hair with it as thoughts raced through my mind about what to do. I wasn't sure what Maris meant about us not being safe outside of the ambit, but I believed him. And if he believed it wasn't safe for me, then it wasn't safe for Seth. I nodded. Okay, Mr. Maris, we'll come with you. Maris smiled kindly at me. He checked the band on his wrist again and used his thumb to point to the light behind him. Okay, then say goodbye. We gotta go. Say goodbye. I wasn't sure what he meant by that. It didn't take me longer than a second of looking at Seth's face to decipher it, though. The goat. Maris meant for us to say goodbye to the goat. And even without Seth saying it, I could tell that was going to be a problem. I wasn't about to disappoint Seth. Mr. Maris, I yelled to the old man. Maris turned around. Yeah? I said, we'll come with you. The goat's coming, too. Chapter 5, Inside the Outside I had never seen anything like it before. The skyline of the city formerly known as Chicago. The first bit of sunlight heralded the coming of a new day and the magnitude of the enormous structures that carried its reflection. The orange and yellow light outlined the shapes in bold blackness. I couldn't imagine a better time of day to have seen it for the first time. In its prime, I could only imagine the sounds, lights, and life that moved through its alleys and roadways. James had shared stories with me of the great stone buildings that stood side by side on the edge of the enormous lake of cold blue water. But even as descriptive as James was in his stories, my imagination never could have stretched to create a world this astounding. I suppose that's one of the greatest downfalls of growing up sheltered in the ambit. My imagination could only dream as far as it had experienced. Our journey from the ambit to the outside was exhausting on my mind and body. I'd ridden in horse-drawn carriages that were more comfortable than Maris's truck, which donned a dented front bumper and a cracked windshield to match. From time to time, a loud creak or pop sound would arise from the engine, keeping the knots in my shoulders and back nice and tight. I found myself constantly looking into the bed of the truck to see if Seth and the goat were still there. I was sure that some of the bumps should have sent them flying out, but each time I looked back at them, Seth would smile and give me a thumbs up. His amusement with the idea of a moving vehicle was sweet. Never did a moment of fear cross his expression. He was having the time of his life, getting the ride of his life. Well, here we are, Maris said as the truck jerked to a halt. Home, sweet home. I hadn't expected the outside to be as civilized as the ambit, but the looks of where we were now, I didn't see any sign of civilization at all. There wasn't a soul in sight. There wasn't a sign of survival or life at all. There was just nothingness. Old, empty buildings, debris from old cars, and overgrown foliage. I shifted from side to side in the vehicle, looking around, half expecting there to be a doorway or sign pointing us in the direction of the outside, but... "'It was devoid of anything.' "'We're here?' I asked. "'Mairs seemed to enjoy my confusion. "'Fear was my new best friend, and he thought it was amusing. "'Just wait,' he chuckled. "'He ducked down and pointed to something above us, outside of the vehicle. "'I copied him, ducking down so that I could see what was above the windshield. "'A black box, which was attached to a long black pole, turned.' "'I wouldn't have even noticed it there "'if it hadn't moved ever so slightly "'in the second that I looked at it. "'What is?' I started, "'but was interrupted by a rumble in the ground under the truck. "'I clenched the handle of the door. "'It's okay,' Maris reassured me. "'That's supposed to happen. "'What's supposed to happen?' "'Maris chuckled again. "'See, the outside is not at all outside.' "'What?' I asked. "'That didn't make sense.' "'Then, in front of the truck,' A large trap door slid open, revealing a ramp that led into the dark tunnel under the ground. Once the trap door rested in the open position, Maris casually shifted the truck into drive, and we lurched forward. I turned to see if Seth was alarmed by all the sudden surprises, but he was too busy looking around at the sights. His mouth was still gaping open, and his eyes were wide with anticipation of what he would experience next. The ramp dropped us onto a platform where other vehicles were parked neatly side by side. I counted 23 other vehicles before we parked in a stall with a sign above it that read MCC Guard 46. Before long, Maris propped open the door and found his feet. He groaned and griped as he stretched his back and arms. I'm getting too darn old for these runs, he moaned. After fumbling with the door handle for a moment, I found the lever which released the lock on the door. I too propped my door open and found my feet under me. "'Seth handed me the goat and then hopped over the edge of the truck bed "'before I handed her back to him to carry. "'She didn't seem to mind at all that we had claimed her as our own. "'What now?' I asked Maris. "'This way. I'll show you the floor.' "'He turned and walked toward the end of the platform. "'I took the satchel from Seth and threw it over my shoulder "'as we followed behind Maris. "'At the edge of the platform there was a place "'that overlooked the entirety of the underground city.' I assumed this was the floor that Maris referred to. The closer I drew to it, the more enthralled I found myself with the colors and life it glowed with. It was fascinating. Off in the distance, there were gigantic screens that flashed lights and colors, pictures and sounds. I had to look away, it was so overwhelming. People, hordes of people, walked in all different directions below us on the floor. I could tell that the tunnels underneath the former city of Chicago were the same ones that I'd read about in books from the Ambit. They had once been used by the city folk for traveling by train. I had read about the underground railroad tracks and the trains that zoomed through the stations. What was now called the floor had obviously been one of these stations. I could imagine what it must have looked like over 30 years ago when it was designed for this purpose, but now it was completely different. Trains didn't race down the tracks because the railroad gutters had been flooded with water. Instead of trains, people traveled by rowboat. While I watched, I'd seen at least a dozen boats pass by the floor. A few of them stopped to drop off or pick up passengers, and then they continued and disappeared down the corridor. Maris, where are they going? I asked, motioning to the disappearing boats. Maris turned to see what I pointed to. He smiled at my ignorance. The canals lead to the other platforms, where there are living quarters and such. I was astounded. The outside was, wasn't was at all what I had pictured for all these years. But the people that lived in the outside looked almost exactly as I expected them to. Almost exactly. Their clothes were colorful, but dirty. Some of the men had long, greasy hair, while other men had their heads shaven completely. The men and women had drawing on drawings on their skin— it seemed to be popular to have drawings on their necks and shoulders, feet, and even their faces. The women wore their hair in all different ways, up and down, long and short. Some had hair with colors I'd never even seen before. The thing that wasn't what I imagined was the looks on their faces. I always thought that people who lived in the outside would appear happier. But the people that I watched now didn't seem happy at all. They seemed bored or lonely. Their skin was pale. "'similar to the citizens in the ambit. "'I wondered if it was because they were underground "'where the sun couldn't color their faces. "'They look so sad,' I said, as an honest observation. "'Maris sighed. "'Well, that's not surprising.' "'Why?' Seth addressed Maris directly for the first time. "'Maris smiled. "'He speaks!' "'Seth laughed at Maris's teasing. "'Well, son, it's a hard life here,' Maris answered.' "'What's so hard about it?' Seth asked. "'You gotta work hard to live. "'And even when you do that the honest way, "'some people around here ain't so hard-working, "'and don't hesitate to take what ain't theirs,' Maris grunted. "'Who?' I asked. "'Ah, you don't need to worry about that. "'I just got carried away,' Maris recanted. "'I scowled at him. "'Come on, I got someone I want y'all to meet, "'but keep your belongings held on too tight. "'We got some pretty crafty pickpockets down there on the floor.' "'Maris warned. warned. "'My father said you would take us to see Lucida,' I said, "'almost asking for clarification before following him. "'Well, I would take you to her if I could. "'Why can't you? Where is she?' I asked. "'Maris's eyes fell to the floor. "'She passed away. "'Dead?' I asked. "'But my father said he doesn't know yet, "'didn't get a chance to tell him. "'If my father was able to tell Maris about my banishment,' "'Then why wasn't Maris able to tell him about Lucita's death? "'Maris, how do you and my father communicate?' I pressed. "'Why do you communicate?' "'Maris cleared his throat. "'His eyes were still settled on the floor in front of him. "'From his pocket he pulled a small box, "'which he tapped on the palm of his opposite hand. "'From the box another white stick slid. "'He pulled it out and slipped it into the rim of his mouth. "'From his shirt pocket he retrieved a little box of matches.' He plucked a match on the outside of the box and lit the white stick. He took a long, deep drag on it. I was growing impatient and asked again, "'Why does he communicate with you?' "'Not really thinking it's my place to answer that, Brit,' Maris said slowly. "'What?' I snipped. "'Not really your place. Then whose place is it?' Maris shrugged his shoulders. "'Your daddy's?' I growled under my breath. "'Oh, well, that's just fine, then. Thanks for nothing.' I must have struck a chord with Maris, when he, who growled back at me. Look here, little lady. You don't get to take that tone with me. If your daddy didn't want you to know, then that's his business. But you ain't got no right to be snotty and ungrateful with me. You think I was out for a joyride tonight and just happened upon you? No. I went out to get you and bring you back here to keep you safe. Maris coughed, caught his breath, and continued, Your daddy is a good man. I don't care what you think you know or don't know. You don't know squat. Thanks for nothing. Thanks for saving your biscuits. How about thanks for that? Maris was storming mad. Save my biscuits? Save them from what? The cold? I've been living in that my whole life. I can take care of myself, I yelled back at him. Maris shook his head and laughed in an angry way. Woman, you've got a lot to learn. You think I'm talking about the cold? Your daddy did shelter you, didn't he? You haven't got a clue of what kind of danger you were in. I didn't know what he was referring to, so I backed down. He hadn't struck me as the type of guy who got angry like that. I didn't say a word, I just thought hard about what he meant. It was Seth who broke the awkward silence between us. Mr. Maris? he asked. What is it? Maris said gruffly, trying to contain his frustration with me. Thank you, Seth said softly. Maris paused with his white stick balanced between his two fingers. He turned and looked at Seth. You're welcome, kid, Maris said kindly with a surprised smile. I choked on the lump in my throat. I was too proud to admit that I may have been a little ungrateful in that moment, but Seth humbled me. Yeah, thanks, I added quickly. Maris's eyes found mine. You're welcome. Now can we get going or what? Chapter six, the game changer. All right, buckle up. Here we go. This is where things get different. This is like the whole thing is like the roller coaster ride when you're going up. This is where we start going down. I'm excited. I don't know if you are. Okay. Six months ago, Seth and I were banished from the only home that either of us had ever known. Left without options or understanding of the world beyond the border of the ambit, we relied on an old man and his beat-up truck to guide us to a new life in the outside. Since that time, I'd learned more about the way the world actually worked than I ever wanted to know, and now I desperately craved the society that I once hated. In the ambit, there was order. There were rules and standards, but there was peace. In the ambit, there was numbness and disregard for life, but there was safety. In the ambit, I was considered weak merely because I was a woman, but at least I knew where I stood. In the outside, there was violence and poverty. There was take without give. There was kill or be killed. The outside was a dark hole in the ground where humans didn't live. They just existed. Joy was as hard to find as natural light. Life was concealed, confused with the temporary highs that medicine and alcohol, violence and lust provided. Since we'd arrived, I'd been mugged twice and threatened more times than I could count. Seth had been jumped and beaten, and his spirit had been all but broken. When we first arrived, I thought that the inhabitants of the outside were even more pathetic than the ambit citizens, weakened by their circumstances and too afraid to do anything about it. Who would choose to live below ground when the city formerly known as Chicago was abundant and bountiful right above our heads? But I realize now... That it wasn't their ignorance and sloth, their unwillingness to help themselves that kept them trapped in this literal pit of despair. It was something far, far worse. I'd spent countless hours wondering why James never told me the truth about the outside and its secrets. But deep down, I knew the answer was simple. If I had known, he knew I never would have come. Get up my mind commanded. A stream of warm liquid slid down my face. I could taste the metallic tang of the blood in my mouth. I forced myself to swallow before the realization set in that I was hurt. Get up. I tried to collect my thoughts, to remember what had knocked me out, but my mind didn't allow me to. It only ordered me to move. My body sprang into action, searching the ground for something to to defend myself with. A shrill scream tore through the sky, and I looked up, expecting to see a shadow zoom overhead. There was nothing. I panned the area around me, finding only smoke and fire burning red and orange and yellow all around. It seemed like only seconds ago that it was dark black. I fought off the urge to curl up in a ball and cower in the corner of what was remaining of the brick wall I had just sheltered myself with. Instead, I chose to think of Isla and Seth. I remembered why I was there in the first place. I remembered why I had chosen to tempt death. With more clarity, I felt around on the ground below me looking for my belongings. An object pricked my finger and I winced, pulling it into view, then I closed my hand around it. My leather satchel was there, too, and I quickly shoved the object inside of the bag and strapped it across my chest. With one last pan of the surrounding area in fire, I took a deep breath and remembered the words of my partner, Zale. Fear will only affect you if you let it. Keep your head about you and don't get cornered keep moving i closed my eyes and counted to three then all in one motion i jumped up and bolted toward the place that i had last seen zale with as much focus as i could muster i ran heart pounding fists sweating jaw clenched toward the rendezvous point point i told myself not to turn to see if my predator was following but instead instead to concentrate on getting back to where the elevator was "'to where I would be able to descend back into the hole known as the outside. "'If it hadn't been for my own clumsiness, I may have actually made it, too, "'but my feet were my nemesis, and I fell hard to the ground with a thud. "'Again, the fear welled up, but this time I fought it off with a loud scream of agony. "'It was as if my fear had been personified, "'and yelling at it could actually scare it off. "'I didn't mean to yell, and instantly knew it was the worst thing I could have done. "'I couldn't stop. I had to keep moving.' Up ahead in the distance, a shadow grazed the brick wall, and just as quickly as it caught my eye, it disappeared. Those things could move fast. My best option at this point was to find cover and hold out until I knew the coast was clear. I ducked into the doorframe of a small building. I would have gone in, but there wasn't any room to enter. It was covered with broken furniture and debris. Other than the heaving of my chest, I stood quietly. The cracking of the fire was far enough away now that I could hear more acutely. I listened for anything that might suggest that I needed to move again. A moment passed, and I didn't hear anything that caused alarm. I lost myself for a second staring at the black chalkboard barely hanging inside of the building. Only one corner of it still clung to the wall. With all the devastation of its background, it hadn't fallen. I found inspiration in imagining how many years that chalkboard had managed to hang all by itself. "'I stuck my head out of the doorway just a little bit "'to scan the path between me and our checkpoint. "'It was clear, clear of immediate threats, "'but also clear of help. "'Where's Zale?' "'Brit,' a whisper broke the silence. "'Brit, over here.' "'I searched the openings in the wall across the path from me. "'Where are you?' I whispered into the dark. "'Look up.' "'I looked up and found Zale standing above me "'on the roof of the little building. "'What should I do?' I asked, "'trying to conceal the fear in my voice.' He looked around from his vantage point. "'Sit tight. I'm coming down.' A feeling of relief refreshed me. I would never have admitted it aloud, but knowing Zale was nearby allowed me to inhale confidently for the first time since we'd gotten separated. "'Stick with me,' he ordered me before we left the elevator. And while I hadn't meant to be insubordinate, I hadn't moved fast enough to keep up with him either. The difference of a few feet had almost cost us both, and when I saw the great beast for the first time... I lost all conscious thought and failed to stay by his side. Like a child, I ran for cover, forgetting all the training he'd given me. But no amount of training could have prepared me to find myself centered in front of a a beast so unbelievable and terrifying. I hoped that Zale would understand. As I waited, I nervously adjusted my satchel, patting the outside of it. Feeling the lump underneath the leather, I hoped that the object I had secured would be enough to redeem me with Zale. I didn't know if it would bring me any luck at the rally, but knew it was better than going back empty-handed. An anguished scream off in the distance jolted me to reality as I ducked back in the doorway, flattening my back against the wall. It was the kind of sound that was both intriguing and repulsive. I wanted to see the monster that produced it, but knew I needed to run for my life every time I heard it. Where is he? A reply scream came from a closer proximity there was more than one, and they were communicating, howling like a hungry wolf would call to its pack. Fear choked me as I realized they were hungering for us. I listened closely, trying to hear Zale's approach. Several minutes had passed since he disappeared on the roof, and I began to plan my next move if he didn't show up soon. A pattering sound closed in on me. I felt my heart beat, speed up, and hot blood swarm my legs and arms, "'Run!' Zale screamed at me. I wanted to, but I couldn't tell where he was and which direction I was supposed to be running. From around the corner of the little building, Zale bolted. A flash of hot light followed him. "'Brit, run!' he screamed again. My feet obeyed before my mind could register the order. I sprinted in front of Zale in the direction of our rendezvous point, a massive building rocketing up into the dark sky. Inside was the elevator that would take us below ground. It was still 50 yards away, a distance that felt like 1,000 steps to me, but less than 20 to the enormous monster that followed. I could hear Zale's feet pacing mine. Faster! As we ran, I felt the earth shake under our feet. A striking, clanging sound came from behind us, prompting Zale to shove me to the side into a wall. He covered me with his body as a blaze of bright light flashed down the trail we were running. Zale cried out as the flames grazed his back. When they dissipated, he grabbed me by the hand and yanked me behind him. We were only steps from the charred black doorway of the Ronde Point building. Zale whipped me around the corner with me in tow, only to toss toss me into a wall as he turned. The heat from the flames scalded my hand. I gasped, stopping for a moment to look at my palm. That moment of distraction was only broken as I looked up to see one of the beasts face to face for the first time. A monitor dragon so large I wouldn't have believed it if my own eyes weren't widening at the sight of it in that very second. He was just as terrifying as they said, with a massive jaw full of teeth and a long, lizard-like body that moved in unimaginable speed. It outsized me by three times as much at least. I screamed. Zale yanked my arm violently, pulling me out of its path before it reared back and threw another stream of scalding flames toward me. Using our size to our advantage, we hid in the building, ducking and crawling around debris. The monitor paced on the opposite side of the wall, sniffing at the spaces. With its... He was too big to follow in with his long, slithering tongue. He screeched out in frustration at not being able to get to us. ''Over here!'' Zale yelled above the squeal. Within seconds, we were far enough into the interior of the building that the monitor could no longer find us. Zale led us to the elevator and smacked the button— When it finally rang and the doors slid open, we poured into it. Neither of us exhaled until the doors closed completely. Seriously, Zale shouted, slamming his hand into the metal wall. His outburst startled me, and I felt like crumbling into a wailing, pitiful mess on the floor. I knew better, though. I had to keep it together. The back of Zale's shirt was charred and gaping open. The flesh on his back was pink and swollen. My stomach dropped. He was burnt. It didn't look bad enough to be serious, but I knew it had to hurt. I reached into my satchel and found the tube of ointment that I carried with me, knowing full well that we might come across the flamethrower. I squeezed a dollop of the cream on the palm of my hand. It soothed the burn that I had sustained. I moved towards Zale, hoping to do the same for his back. "'I'm fine!' he yelled. "'I don't need that.' He was fuming, mad at me. I wanted to apologize and beg his forgiveness, but that might appear as weakness." Stick together. Didn't I say stick together? Maris said you could handle it. You said you could handle it. You almost got us both killed. You know that? I swallowed the lump in my throat. I wanted to cry, but I didn't show it. Instead, I moved in on him again so that I could apply the ointment that I knew he needed. He whipped around and locked eyes with me. I could see the rage in them. He seemed like he was trying to contain it, but wasn't doing a very good job. There are two kinds of people, Brett. There are people who run toward danger and people who run from it. Which are you? His question caught me off guard. It wasn't rhetorical. He actually wanted me to answer him. I rested back on my heels. It's not that black and white, Zale. He closed in on me, getting only a foot from my face. He pointed toward the door of the elevator. When you're out there, it is. He turned away from me again. I thought about whether I should try to apply the ointment or not. Part of me didn't want to anymore. Zale was shaking his head and mumbling to himself. He seemed like he was trying to self-soothe, and I would have been perfectly fine to let him until I heard him mumble, I'm as crazy as my own man, there's a reason why women can't go up there. What did you say? I asked, feeling the apologetic lump in my throat disappear completely. Zale turned. I said, there's a reason why no one will train a woman to go up there, you can't handle it. "'I should have followed my gut and told Maris, "'No, I knew you weren't cut out to be a farmer. "'Then why did you take me up there, Zale? "'Let's get real here for a second. "'I scowled back at him. "'I knew just as well as he did "'that the only reason he agreed to train me "'to farm the resources "'was because if I did happen to be successful, "'it would gain him recognition at the rally, "'and the better he looked at the rally, "'the better his reputation in the outside would be. "'In the outside, your reputation is everything.' If you're someone of importance, someone of value, then you can live longer and better. Reputation was currency. It was a meal ticket. It meant protection. The closer to the top of the food chain you were, the more food there was to eat. It was the same reason that I volunteered to farm above ground in the first place. As the only female farmer, I could guarantee Seth and myself a life of some safety and decent comfort in the outside. Since there weren't any other options... I was literally risking it all in order to survive. This is why I always tried to appear tough. It's also why I pretended not to care about other people, like Zale. It's unfortunate that this has quickly become my way of life, but not caring about others is actually what allows me to care for Seth. It makes me wonder how the world came to this. Why is it that when we're desperate and afraid for our safety, we're willing to do whatever is necessary to protect ourselves and our loved ones? Whatever is necessary, even if it means ignoring our basic instinct to love each other. Zale paced back and forth on the opposite side of the elevator. I pressed him further. I know you took a risk taking me up there, but don't pretend like you're not getting anything out of this. You need me just as much as I need you. Let's get something straight, he scolded me. I don't need you. I was doing fine on my own. You do too. You know why? He scowled at me again. "'assuming that I would tell him whether he answered or not. "'He was right. "'Because you're stupid.' "'His eyebrows rose in surprise and then furled again in offense. "'There's two kinds of people, Zale. "'People who let someone treat their wounds when they're hurt "'and people who refuse help and let the wound fester until it kills them. "'Which one are you?' "'Zale's glare turned to consideration for my meaning. "'He pondered my question. "'Then the corner of his mouth turned up into a smirk. "'He got it. "'He had guts.' but I had sense. Whether he liked it or not, he needed my help. His angry gaze finally broke, and he said, Then stick with me next time. I kept a straight face on the outside, but on the inside I rejoiced because he was in agreement with me. Turn around so I can put this on your back, I ordered. His eyes narrowed on mine, and then with an indignant sigh, he turned around. On the other side of the elevator doors, a crowd awaited us. Upon seeing both Zale and I return in one piece, a cheer erupted. I buried my chin in my chest, trying not to be seen. Their support wasn't genuine. At least half of them had bet against me. I was the underdog, and my face showing in the elevator meant a lot of people had lost money gambling on my life. It was obvious which ones won bets, as they high-fived each other and patted me on the back. Zale waved his hand as a kind gesture to welcome the recognition. I ignored them. My life wasn't a game for them to make money off of. We pushed through the crowd and separated to our respective parties. Seth and Maris waited for me, and a group of scantily clad women waited for Zale. You okay? Seth asked, panicked. I heard the hunting call. Were they after you? He seemed to have a million questions in that moment, none of which I wanted to answer. Yeah, I'm okay. I plopped down on a bench. Maris shoved a bottle of water into my hand. "'I uncapped it and swigged down half. "'What was it like?' Seth asked with excitement in his eyes. "'Did you see one?' "'I nodded before finishing off the rest of the water. "'They are big, ain't they?' Maris half-smiled like he and I had some sort of inside joke. "'I nodded again. Big was an understatement. "'Maris's half-smile turned serious. "'How'd it go, then?' "'I shook my head. Not great.' "'I watched Zale interlude with the woman on the other half of the hallway. "'Well, you're alive, so that's something,' Maris offered, trying to cheer me up. "'That's only thanks to your son,' I nodded towards Zale. "'Maris followed my eyes as they settled across the hall. "'It'll get easier,' Maris offered. "'I half laughed. "'He and I both knew it wouldn't. "'What do they look like?' Seth asked. "'He wanted to know every detail. "'I didn't answer. "'I didn't know how.' How could I possibly explain the dragons who roamed above ground? How could anyone explain them? No one seemed to know where they'd come from, how many there were, or how far they extended. All they seemed to know was that they showed up 25 some years ago and that they have a particular liking for human meat forcing humans to live underground out of their reach. Farmers are the only people who go above ground in search of supplies and food for survival below it. In the years following the crisis, When all technological infrastructure and civilization fell apart, a group of survivors banded together and harnessed wind power from the wind turbines that lined the Great Lake. The city formerly known as Chicago had once been dubbed the Windy City. It was a good thing, too, because without the wind and the wind turbines, the outside never would have had power. And while they might have been able to survive for a while like that, once monitors began hunting them and they took to living below the city, life would have been impossible without power. "'How long until the rally begins?' I asked Maris. "'He checked the leather band on his wrist and answered, fifteen minutes.' "'We better get going then,' I said, "'wondering how much longer Zale would entertain the dirty birds that surrounded him. "'It was clear that some of them had gone to great lengths to look their best, "'and others had not tried too hard at all. "'Some just smiled and giggled obnoxiously, "'while others gasped and cooed over his every expression and word.' I didn't really understand the fascination they had with him. Zale was rugged in appearance. His hair was greasy and long, his face unshaven. Except for his height, he looked just like a younger version of Maris. His eyes were clear blue with flecks of green when he wore the color. His smile was warm and inviting, but his extreme confidence overwhelmed it, leading me to find it fake and annoying at times. Fortunately for our working relationship, Zale really didn't seem to care too much about the attention he got from the flock of women. I was sure that he had indulged himself from time to time to take care of his male urges, but for the most part, he just brushed them off. I respected that. I rolled my eyes as I heard one of the dirty birds chirp something about, Don't you ever get scared? Yeah, but I've been doing this a while, you know. It would be nice if I didn't have to, but not many people are willing to, Zale bolstered. At first, it's scary as all get-out, but then you start to look forward to it. Then you get a rush of adrenaline from it, and then he paused and shrugged his shoulder. Well, then it just becomes something you do. The latter part of his statement struck me. I wondered if that was true. He caught me looking at him. I rolled my eyes at the women. He smiled back. Zale excused himself from the gaggle of ladies and made his way our direction. His eyes were locked on mine until he came within earshot. You got some blood on you. You okay? He almost sounded concerned for me. This came as a huge surprise to me and an even greater surprise to some of the dirty birds that had followed him over. They looked me up and down, whispering, and then began to disperse as his attention was turned to me. I reached up and dabbed at my head. Oh, I think I just caught a rock with my forehead after we got separated. "'Oh, is that all?' Maris laughed. "'So do you want to go clean up first, or are you going like that?' "'Zale maintained seriousness. "'I looked down at my burnt, torn, and tattered clothes. "'I shrugged. "'I don't care what I look like. Does it matter?' "'Zale smirked. "'Normally it doesn't matter what a farmer looks like, "'but since you're a female, I think you ought to clean up. "'You never know what your looks might do for you at the rally.' "'The idea of being treated differently,' for my gender or looks irritated me. Well, unlike you, Zale, I have no interest in using my looks to gain any sort of favor at the rally, so I guess I'm going like this. Zale rolled his eyes. Jeez, Britt, don't be so sensitive. I was paying you a compliment, saying it wouldn't hurt for them to see you all cleaned up. Cool it. I didn't like his tone with me, but his reaction was what I wanted. Can we go? I snipped. Zale held out his hand as though to say he was waiting on me. I walked past him and headed for the canal passage. Behind me, I could hear Zale ask Seth, Seriously, how do you put up with her? At the canal passage, the four of us boarded a gondola boat. Seth and I sat on one bench while Zale and Maris sat across from us. What happened to your satchel? Maris asked Zale. Zale grumbled. The strap caught and snapped on a fire escape. I didn't have time to go back to get it. So you lost your bounty? Maris questioned. "'All but these.' "'Zale bent over and reached into a pocket on the lower half of his pants. "'He pulled a handful of something from it. "'He unfolded his hand to show his father four metal black tubes "'that were each about an inch long. "'Well, that's better than nothing,' Maris smiled. "'He was a kind man, tough, around the edges, "'but never quick to point out someone's shortcomings. "'He always had something positive or humorous to offer, "'and I could always count on him to lighten the mood.' He turned his attention to me. What about you? I smiled sheepishly. Actually, I didn't... Well, that's okay. Here, Maris said. He took the objects from Zale's open hand and reached across the gondola to hand them to me. Take these. Zale began to protest, but Maris set him straight. They aren't going to do you any good, but if she takes them in, you'll both look good. Zale must have agreed. He nodded for me to take them, so I did. I put them in my satchel. The gondola came to rest against the platform labeled with a 14. Seth climbed out and turned around to bid us good luck. Straight home, I reminded him. He nodded. The gondola driver pushed off the platform and merged us back into the canal passage. I watched Seth as far as I could until he disappeared into the crowd. I hated letting him go without an escort. I hoped that my trip to the rally would give us some insurance for his safety in the future. I hated that he was in so much danger here because he had followed me from the ambit. Okay, so now that the kid's gone, you need to know something, Zale said. The rally's extremely dangerous, and the pickpockets are pros. They'll cut your pockets. They'll rip your bag off your arm, and even if your arm's still attached, they'll take that too. You need to stick with me. If you lose your bounty, you're nothing but a pretty face, and that's not what you're selling, right? I cocked my head to the side. I can handle it. Maris piped in. After the caller rings the bell, he'll start calling out for certain things. Listen for yours. When he calls something that you have, you need to get his attention. If he likes you, he'll accept your bounty, then move on to the next. The more you provide the rally, the better off you'll be. Got it? Yeah, but what if they don't accept my bounty? Then what? Maris smiled. Sweetheart, I don't think you're going to have to worry. You'll get his attention just fine. My stomach turned. I hated how they implied my bounty was more than what was in my satchel. Well, what about the others? What do they do if they aren't chosen? Well, then they can sell to the brokers, or they can sell it on the black market, Zale answered. What's that? Brokers are street sellers. You mean thieves, Maris added. They'll take your resource and trade it on the street for double. Not only that, but they're thugs. They're territorial and violent. Zale cut back in on the conversation. If you're... If you're not a broker, selling anything outside the rally is illegal. I've done it a few times, but it's really dangerous. The rally's the only safe way to do it. Don't sell to the brokers. You'd be better off up there than you are down here if you get messed up with them. He pointed upward to the city above. But I don't get it. Why? Zale shrugged his shoulders. Just the way it is. Maris added, There's more to the underworld of the outside than meets the eye. "'Don't think for a second that there isn't someone pulling the strings around here. "'Just because you can't see them, just because they ain't in your face, "'like the guiding authority, don't mean they ain't there. "'So they control what gets bought and sold at the rally?' Maris nodded. "'And they control who gets what supplies?' Maris nodded again. "'But who are they?' Maris lowered his voice to a whisper, "'like he was letting me in on a secret. We call them the underground.' "'Keep your eyes open. They're all over. "'The callers, the brokers, the thugs who run around enforcing things. "'Don't worry about all of that,' Sale interrupted. "'Just focus on selling your bounty and you'll be fine.' "'A roar of voices grew louder. "'The gondola broke into the light as we approached another platform. "'It was bustling with activity. "'We waited in the long line of other boats "'with men climbing out, clinging to various items.' Some had bags, others jugs or large barrels. Others carried crates. When it was our turn to unload, Zale climbed out first and turned to extend his hand to me. I noticed a few faces turned to look at me. They were all men. Their looks questioned what I was doing there. I refused Zale's help and climbed out on my own. I slid my hand inside of my satchel and clenched my bounty in my fist. With a quick movement, I turned around from the crowd and faced Zale, Stuffing the contents of my hand into my bra under my jacket and shirt, Zell's eyebrows rose in confusion. "What?" You said. "The pickpockets are pros." Zell laughed and nodded. "They'd have to be pretty stealthy to find it there, I guess." I smiled and winked at him. "Exactly." The platform where the rally took place was the same size as all the other platforms in the underground. In the center of it was a large stage with four call- where four callers stood separated into four quadrants, each organized into the four types of resources, food, medicine, luxuries, and necessities. The man in the middle, who was the oldest, had a microphone with a speaker attached to him. At the base of each quadrant was a broker. Just looking at them gave me chills. With each broker were a number of other men that I could tell were there simply to intimidate the farmers. I was sure that they were the muscle that enforced the rules at the rally and on the streets. At the base of the quadrant for necessities, I noticed one of the men was staring at me. He was gigantic, tall, and muscular. His skin was something to notice, dark as night and smooth. The shine from the overhead lights gleamed off of his bald head. I kept checking back to see if he'd stopped looking, but each time I looked, he was still there, just watching me. I tried to pretend like I didn't notice his attention. Normally I would have been intimidated by him, but the look on his face didn't read threat. It just read curiosity. At one point he smiled at me like we were old friends. He had a nice smile. I caught myself smiling back. I retracted the gesture. I knew he wasn't smiling at me in the kind way that the people in the ambit did. Either he was paying attention to me because I was a woman or because he wanted something from me. I inched in closer to Zale and Maris. Most of the farmers in attendance at the rally were new like me. Over time, they'll either die off or gain attention, fame, and eventually retire. They ranged in age from 16 to mid-60s. They were probably brothers, sons, husbands, fathers, and grandfathers. I wondered how many of them were there to feed their families and how many of them were going to end up feeding the monitors instead. Some farmers sign up for the glory of the hunt, but most new farmers go out for the sheer desperation to provide protection for their families. It's sad to me that these are the farmers that usually end up dying first. It's even more unfortunate that I'm one of these farmers. Other than the farmers, there were a few dozen women who stood off to the side of the luxury quadrant. I recognized a few of them to be the same of the women who were so attentive to zale at the elevator. Suddenly it made sense to me why they were so aggressive with him. They were prostitutes, hoping to sell their bodies to him because of his reputation at the rally. That's why all the women were there by the luxury quadrant. They were considered luxuries to be sold to the callers. My stomach turned. "'We're over here,' Zale pointed to the busiest quadrant, the one labeled Necessities. As I followed him through the crowd of burly, smelly men... He stopped every few strides to see if I was still behind him. I think he even reached out for my hand at one point, expecting to pull me through the ocean of bodies, but I refused to grab it. I didn't want anyone to think I needed him to part the seas of men for me. I would just assume crawl under them if need be. I remembered the black man who'd been watching me. I checked to see if he was still by the stage, but he was gone. I started to scan the crowds looking for him. He was the type of man that would have stuck out easily, but he was nowhere in sight. "'Brit, hurry up!' Zale yelled back at me. I turned to follow him again. I growled under my breath as I bounced back and forth off the shoulders, backs, and bellies of my counterparts. At one point, someone managed to grab my back end, but by the time I turned to sucker punch whoever it was, a fight had broken out, and I couldn't tell who'd done it. When I turned back again to follow Zale, he'd completely disappeared in the chaos. I tried not to panic— I decided the only way I was going to get through this clutter of men was by propping out my elbows and stomping through, throwing my weight into my every step. If I wanted to be intimidating enough to move past them, I needed to act like it. Okay, y'all, a voice came over the loudspeaker to address the tiring crowd. We're going to get started here in a few minutes. Find your quadrant. Brit! Zell yelled over the noise. I felt a hand touch my shoulder, and just in case someone was thinking they were going to get the best of me again, I swung around, ready to fight. "'Woman, you're wearing me out,' Zale said when he saw my fists balled up. "'We need to be over here. I found a spot where you're sure to get some notice.' Zale pointed toward the back wall of the rally platform. He extended his hand again to lead me. This time, I obliged. Whether I liked it or not, it was probably smart not to get separated from him for the third time today." Zell led me to a wood crate against the wall, and before I knew it, he lifted me up onto it. Standing on top of the box, I was finally able to see the layout of the platform. I looked down at Zell with excitement. I was in a position to see everything now. "'Thanks,' I said to him. "'This is a good spot.' Zell smiled at my politeness. "'No problem. Now, when they start, you need to make sure you're loud. A woman's voice won't carry like a man's, but once they hear you and see you, you won't have to worry. They'll listen.' Okay, y'all, same voice as before could be heard. It was the older man that I noticed earlier with a microphone. He was the caller for the necessities quadrant. At the base of his quadrant, four men stood. I had noticed them earlier, but this time I took note of one in particular because he was so much younger and shorter than the others. He struck me as a kind of young man who wanted desperately to fit in with his counterparts and put on a good show, but was so out of place that he stuck out like a sore thumb. "'It's time to get started. Please remember, gentlemen,' he noticed me across the room, standing on my box before he continued. "'And, lady, any pushing, shoving, fighting, or otherwise will not be tolerated. You will be removed immediately.' As he finished his warning, a majority of the heads in front of me turned to see who the lady was. A cat call and a whistle chimed out of the crowd. "'Men are pigs,' so I ignored it. "'I wasn't here to be a woman. I was here to be a farmer, just like the rest of them.' Mm Okay, when the bell rings, y'all are good to go. "'When the bell rings a second time, we're done.' "'He held up a large brass bell, and as he rang it, he casually said, "'Begin!' "'Immediately, a flurry of activity started. "'The callers spoke so fast they could hardly make out what resources they were calling. "'Farmers were waving their hands in the air, yelling back. "'When the caller got the resource he needed, He pointed to the broker, who would then immediately start chanting and chattering like the caller. Farmers would call and wave back at him, and then he would write it down. The callers and the brokers for all four quadrants were going at once. It was madness. I looked down at Zale, suddenly reconsidering the whole thing. I didn't know how I was going to hear my resource called, let alone how I was going to call back in time. But it was clear that Zale had a strategy of his own, because he was right there in the midst of it, waving and yelling. He glanced up at me and yelled over the noise, Get on it or you ain't going to get a thing. I focused my eyes and my ears to hear the caller's voice. Bushkets? What are bushkets? Did he say blankets or baskets or bushes? Learnins? Is that a book or a kind of food? I was going to miss the whole rally. Finally, I'd had enough. I never imagined that the rally would have been harder than the farming. Well, if I can handle a monitor, I can handle a bunch of testosterone-driven, smelly, hairy-tailed, chasing men. And with that notion, I jumped off my wooden crate, picked it up with both hands, and held it out in front of my stomach. I used it as a sort of mover to clear my path. I had no shame in jabbing the others in their backs and sides to get by. I worried for all of a half-second that they might boot me for being abrasive, but then I remembered no one could see me for all these man-beasts that tower over me. I finally found my way to the front of the platform, placed my box back on the floor, and stepped up on it triumphantly. I puffed out my chest and clenched my jaw to look as intimidating as I could possibly muster. The caller stopped for a second to raise his eyebrows at me and smirk a little, and then he continued on. Now I could hear him, and I was just in time. Batteries, the caller called. Right here, I screamed and jumped. I've got your batteries right here. I reached into my bra and pulled them out. The man next to me made a comment about hoping they were a size double D, but I blocked him out. "'What size batteries do you have, young lady?' the caller asked, amused by my enthusiasm. "'I have four, size double A!' he pointed to me and yelled, "'Her!' then he pointed to the broker. "'What else you got?' he called back to me. I was shocked that he was giving me another chance to sell my bounty. Uh ah, uh, ah, I stammered. I looked down and opened my empty satchel. He'd caught me off guard, so I'd almost forgotten about my other item I'd found in the field and stored in my bra. Then I remembered. I've got a tooth! A what? the caller yelled back, cupping his ear to hear me better. A tooth! I have a monitor's tooth! The caller and almost everyone within hearing range of me stopped what they were doing. The caller from our quadrant looked over at the caller in the next quadrant and then grabbed the bell and rang it. The rally's over. Angry men in the crowd cussed at him and yelled their protests. He rang the bell again. I said we're done. He found me across the way. Young miss, I need a word. He stared directly at me. I shuddered. Sure, I nodded hesitantly. I wasn't sure why they had ended the rally early or what they wanted with me, but the caller didn't seem happy at all. I turned to find Zale's face across the crowd. He, too, just stared at me. He must have held me in his gaze for a full ten seconds with no expression, and then finally his smile broke, giving me relief. I exhaled the breath I was holding hostage, and then I smiled back.
2: Good.
0: (laughs)
1: uh <laughs>